As of today, Health Canada is requiring individual labeling on cigarettes. So warnings that say things like poison in every puff and cigarettes cause cancer. This is going to make Canada the first country to do something like this. So let's get some perspective on what this move is intended to do and what we anticipate is going to be the effect. Our guest is a senior policy analyst at the Canadian Cancer Society, Rob Cunningham. Rob, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Chelsea, thank you very much. Uh, Good to be with you. I think this is such an interesting move, considering the fact that Canada is going to be the first country to do something like this. What do you make of it, Rob? Well, it's innovative. Uh, We're very pleased. We strongly support this. We've actually been working on it, the Canadian Cancer Society, since 2006. Uh, It's Mm. a measure that many of our health organizations have supported. Yeah, back in 2006, we commissioned a study, uh, focus groups in Canada, to look at whether this would be effective. The conclusion was yes. Today, there's now uh, roughly 25 studies in Canada and other countries that collectively provide compelling evidence that this is going to be a good measure. And this is... You know, we uh, we have about 20 billion cigarettes uh, sold in Canada each year. And having a warning on every individual cigarette is going to reach every smoker every day uh, with every cigarette, with every puff. It's going to be there during every smoke break. It's going to prompt a discussion. Um, and it's, it's, it's a warning that simply cannot be ignored. And it's, it's, going to, it's perfectly targeted. It's going to have tremendous reach. Um, and it's going, to do, it's going to do the job. Yeah, it takes a little bit of the sexiness out of it. You know, if people are still smoking for that reason, that sort of cool factor that I think has long, long been over with. But, you know, when you're putting something up to your face that says cigarettes cause leukemia, it's it's pretty confronting, to say the least. I'm curious, Rob, I just want to go back to something that you said about this being something that you have been pitching or working on since 2006. What has taken so long? Well, the biggest issue is that Health Canada did not have uh, regulatory authority to do these regulations until 2018. Uh, so there, when there was amendments to the federal tobacco legislation going through, um, we urged this along with other groups that the, you know, that in the bill, that there be this provision that had all party support in terms of an amendment at the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health. And after 2018, uh, then we, things moved faster. Uh, there was, you know, the health minister said that uh, at, the, at the day that she would be interested in doing this. The government had a consultation paper in the fall of 2018. They had draft uh, regulations, um, you know, published in June 2021, you know, about a year ago for consultation. And so there's been lots of steps in the process. Uh, but for, for the longest time, the government just didn't have, didn't have that authority to take the step. And once they did, uh, things moved faster. So it's been a long time coming. Obviously, this is something that you are happy about at the Canadian Cancer Society. I'm curious because Canada was also one of the first countries to publish warnings as pictures on cigarette packaging. And I think we can all call to mind some of those really graphic images that are on the outside of packages. Now, there's more than 130 countries that have moved forward to do that same strategy. So do you anticipate that there's going to be a big wave of other countries following suit with this individual warning label? I do. I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, already, Australia and Norway have announced that they're looking to follow the Canadian example warnings on individual cigarettes. It's a fairly easy thing uh, for governments to do because it doesn't cost them anything. Tobacco companies have to pay for the printing. Uh, you know, the health ministries will determine what mm-hmm. the messages are. So I do. I, I, and I think it's important for a few countries to go first, and then the dominoes fall. And, 
Uh, you know, especially for low-income countries, you very often uh, cigarettes are purchased individually without a package. And so I think in those countries, there's an extra incentive for governments uh, to adopt this measure. It's it's interesting that tobacco companies are going to be the ones footing the bill for this for printing onto the cigarettes, because I think one of the main arguments in some of the conversation that I've seen on social media is that this is a waste of resources. But it's almost, you know, kind of a way of targeting those tobacco companies in a way that now there's this extra fee that they have to include in their packaging and their manufacturing. Was that part of the strategy? Well, I think it's actually the cost is going to be quite nominal for the companies. They've already, uh, for years, they've printed their brand logo and uh, brand name on the cigarette filter or the paper over the filter, the space where this new health warning is going to be. Um, that stopped in 2019 uh, when plain packaging uh, was introduced in Canada. But in most countries of the world, they're still printing uh, the brand name and logo on that, you know, the paper over the filter. And even today in Canada, many of them have sort of that um, fake cork uh, appearance on that filter. Mm-hmm. So they're already printing uh, something there. Um, uh, now, one thing I think is important is youth, because uh, we want to prevent youth from starting to smoke. And many youth experiment by um, uh, borrowing, uh, quote unquote, or obtaining a cigarette from a friend. They may not see that warning on the package, but they're going to see the warning on the cigarette. And it's going to make the cigarette, you mentioned this a moment ago, it's going to make it less attractive, less cool. And for youth, they're very concerned about appearance, what their friends uh, see and think about them. And so I think that's a factor in terms of youth. And also youth may not be as aware of the health effects as they will be when they're older. And so this is a great way, you know, in terms of youth education uh, about the health effects. It's, it's going to really reach them. So is this directly targeted to that younger demographic that is sort of thinking that they might experiment with smoking and not yet be addicted? I think that's, a, that's certainly a clear part of it, but not the only part. I think it's going to have an impact on adults as well. Um, you know, some adults that are maybe close to quitting and they need just a little bit more motivation to get them over the top. Um, it, you know, also, you, you mentioned, um, you know, cigarettes cause leukemia. We've never had a health warning before in Canada about smoking leukemia. This provides new information. Next spring, there's also going to be 14 new picture warnings on cigarette packages. The current warnings haven't changed since 2012. They're stale. Um, but there's so many health effects from smoking that you just can't get them in 14 messages. So the space on the, on the cigarettes uh, provides an opportunity for additional messages. I'm, I don't want to diminish the, the move to do something like this and to, to add more warning labels. I think more awareness is always a good thing. But, you know, it kind of makes you think about what's next. And if you're imagining younger demographics, maybe not understanding the health effects of smoking, it doesn't just end with cigarettes. So is there a move now, Rob, towards warning labels on things like e-cigs and vapes? Is that sort of the next domino to fall here? So currently, there is a health warning with respect to nicotine addiction on packages of um, vapes, but people often you know, will just carry around their e-cigarette without the package. So I think Health Canada is going to look to see how this goes and possibly consider in the future having a health warning directly on e-cigarette devices. You know, that would certainly, some of them look like, you know, uh, flash drives or, you know, uh, memory sticks. And, yeah. you know, teachers can't tell the difference necessarily. So uh, having that health warning will help teachers and parents distinguish what the product really is. It'll, it'll provide information, um, you know, to the, uh, to the consumer. It'll make the product uh, less attractive. 
So I think there's a number of reasons why my health can make it this in the future. But as you say, it's not been done yet. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Chelsea Bird, your guest host for tonight. We've been talking about Canada being the first country to introduce warning labels on individual cigarettes as of today. But some people still remain skeptical. I don't know. I don't think putting a couple of words on a cigarette, if they're already buying it, they already know what it's going to do to them, right? Um, No warnings are going to stop me unless I want to stop myself. It's all willpower. I have that feeling all the time, so it's more of a stress relief and a habit. So So we're talking about this with Senior Policy Analyst at the Canadian Cancer Society, Rob Cunningham. Rob, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. really appreciate your time. Thanks, Chelsea. Now, to address the skepticism, you did a lot of work and a lot of research here since 2006 before instituting this. So what does the evidence say in terms of what the effectiveness of a campaign like this will be? Well, you know, different research has looked at it in different ways. Sometimes it's youth, sometimes it's adults, uh, sometimes it's smokers. You know, it's looking at whether this is going to make the cigarette less attractive, whether it's going to provide new information, uh, increase awareness of the health effects, uh, discourage smoking. Sometimes they've been large-scale quantitative surveys. Sometimes they've been smaller focus groups where you're able to have um, you know, much more intimate conversation. And you know, it, the studies have been in Australia and New Zealand and Norway and Great Britain um, and, and Canada, certainly. And the results are consistent. And you know, the tobacco industry has opposed this. Uh, they opposed picture warnings, uh, you know, that 2001 round. They went to court all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to challenge it. Uh, they lost. And, you know, when the tobacco companies are opposed, it's a sign they were on the right track. Um, and I think, you know, just listening to some of the uh, the, uh, the people that you just had on a moment ago, clearly it's not going to eliminate all smoking. You know, many smokers are going to continue. That's the case for picture warnings as well. But if we can make some reduction, uh, you know, given how huge smoking is in terms of the leading preventable cause of disease and death in Canada, causing 46,000 deaths each year, you know, just a little reduction can have a great population-wide impact. And for some people, they may have smoked for decades, but at a certain point, there might be a life-changing event. There might be a friend or family member who has a heart attack or lung cancer, or maybe uh, their spouse uh, becomes pregnant, or their daughter or daughter-in-law becomes pregnant, someone's about to become a grandparent. Mm. These can really hit home personally. And people might suddenly look at the warnings uh, much more closely um, and, and, and it can have an opportunity for a new impact. You know, the topic of warning labels has been something that's been kind of tossed around for the last several months. There were calls to label alcohol earlier this year. Um, there was a report from the Canadian Centre on Substance uh, Abuse and Addiction. They released that report that, of course, made a ton of headlines saying no more than two drinks a week for an adult is is healthy or at that point can be risky. And there was conversation about labeling alcohol products as well for similar reasons that you're leaning towards for the cigarettes. Is that something that you'd be a proponent for as well, Rob? The Canadian Cancer Society has supported that. Uh, Now, in the United States, there is already, um, since the early 1980s, uh, a health warning on uh, alcohol containers, beer, wine, liquor. It's very small. It's not very prominent, but it's there. And it's about pregnancy and uh, driving and operating equipment. Recently, Ireland um, adopted a series of uh, warnings for alcohol, uh, including one on cancer. And that has been strongly opposed uh, by the alcohol industry. It's Mm. about uh, a couple more years before they actually appear on the labels. Um, But there is more discussion about this internationally um, as a way to inform consumers. 
Well, Rob, thank you so much for making the time this evening uh, to talk about this, to talk about this move that has one that you've been working on, as you said, for a very long time. I know that you're happy to see it come to uh, fruition. So really appreciate your time this evening to talk about it. Well, thanks very much, uh, Chelsea. Great to have the opportunity to, uh, to discuss this in depth. We're talking now about the idea of colonizing other planets. Believe it or not, this is an idea that's been pitched by the co-founder of OceanGate, the company that you will remember from, of course, running the Titan submersible that imploded in June and killed all five passengers. Uh, now they're coming forward saying that they want to send a thousand people to Venus in a floating colony by the year 2050. So is this something that's even realistic or is this just a publicity stunt? We're going to get into it right now with our guest, public education specialist for the Planetary Society, Kate Howells, joining the show. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I mean, this is a wild conversation. To even entertain the idea of colonizing another planet, I feel like we're sort of living in an alternate reality. This doesn't seem realistic. Or am I just being really skeptical? What do you make of these headlines? No, I completely agree with you. I think the idea of colonizing other planets is has always fascinated people. It's the stuff of science fiction, but at the same time, it is uh, something that's being explored by NASA and other space agencies. But this particular project, this particular plan, does strike me as incredibly unrealistic. Um, and I think especially the timing of when he is announcing this plan so shortly after this horrible tragedy um, is is pretty shocking, honestly. And it makes you wonder about the motivations behind this company. I mean, is this just an attempt to make an about face and just change the conversation and sort of, you know, have people re-understand what they do? Uh, it's it's a hard one to swallow, but it is sort of a fun place to imagine and to think about in terms of, you know, maybe a potential one day, maybe not by 2050, but uh, as an eventuality. Can we talk a little bit about what the idea is, at least from what we know? Kate, he talks about this being a floating colony. What does that even mean? Yeah, so I had only heard about this today and done some research, and it is a a fairly interesting concept, and it's actually something that NASA explored in a a slightly different way. Hmm. But the idea is that if you were to send a inflatable spacecraft, sort of like a Zeppelin or a blimp, Um, If you sent that to Venus and you inflated it with breathable air, like air like we have on Earth, like in our atmosphere, you inflated it with that at about 50 kilometers above the surface of Venus, it would float because uh, because Venus's atmosphere is more dense than Earth. If you just put Earth atmosphere in there, it would float. Mm. So you could have this floating craft, like again, like a blimp. And you could potentially have humans live on that craft. Now, when NASA explored it, they were looking at something where, you know, there would be a small crew of scientists living on this kind of Venusian blimp. Um, what uh, phone line, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but this, this, uh, this OceanGate co-founder, what he's proposing is having a thousand people live in a sort of almost like a space station, but that's suspended in the atmosphere uh, in this kind of blimp method. Um, and his his concept comes from I read on his blog that uh, he was always he's always been interested in human expansion beyond Earth, mm. 
And usually people look at Mars as the place to do that. However, Mars has an app or has is smaller, so its gravity is only about 30, 38% as strong as Earth gravity. So there are potential problems there that if humans live long term in a lower gravity environment, it might, might have negative impacts on their health, on their ability to reproduce, all these things. Um, so his vision is to go to Venus, which is roughly the same size as Earth, has roughly the same gravitational pull. Um, however, the surface of Venus is not a place that anyone would want to go. It's got incredibly high uh, pressure just because the atmosphere of Venus is so, so thick that when you're standing on the surface, you're underneath as much atmosphere as like the, the pressure from the atmosphere would be about the same as being a kilometer underwater on Earth. Um, the temperature is super high. It's about 460 degrees Celsius, which is hot enough to melt lead. Like it's such an intensely inhospitable environment that even robotic spacecraft that have been sent to the surface of Venus over the years have only been able to operate for like hours at most. It's, they get destroyed by the conditions. So obviously you can't just say, oh, the gravity is the same as Earth. Let's just send human right. colonists there. Right. So he says, oh, let's go up in the atmosphere. But this is this is not a a sustainable plan, in my opinion. Kate, honestly, you're describing this, and this sounds awful. Everything about this yeah. sounds like a terrible thing for anyone to want to do. I mean, the idea of space travel, yeah. I'm sure, you know, so many of us are a little bit interested in the idea of it. It does sort of make us think about, um, you know, sci-fi and all the stories that we've grown up with. There's a curiosity there that I think is very natural as humans. But <laughs> why would anyone want to do something like this? This it sounds yeah, like you'd absolutely. be stuck in this floating blimp with a thousand people with no escape except to then look at down at this burning planet that that could kill you. This sounds terrible. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, it it the, my main question when I was reading his plan and which is not answered in any of his materials is what would these people be doing right. on this space station? Like you have, if you look at the International Space Station, which is in orbit around the Earth, it's in space. There's usually five astronauts on there, and they're all doing research. They're all scientists and engineers. They're, they're studying the conditions of, of being in microgravity, and they're studying the Earth from afar. It's, they're doing all kinds of research. Sure. Maybe if you had, what, like what NASA had envisioned with their floating Venus station, again, it could be a handful of scientists doing research for a short period of time. But a thousand colonists, what would they be doing? If you had, if you had a, a vision for a colony on Mars, which would be on the ground, presumably, because there's, yeah, there's no atmosphere, there's no substantial atmosphere on Mars, you'd have to be on the ground. Those people who live there could conceivably be mining the surface of Mars to extract water and fuel and building materials. They could be developing the sustainability of their colony if you're just floating in a blimp in the atmosphere of Venus, I cannot fathom what a thousand people would be doing. So it does kind of seem like, yeah, you'd just be there for the experience, which is fine. Then talk about it as a Venusian hotel, but not a colony. We're not establishing something long-term and sustainable there. Kate, it seems like this is just something that's completely unrealistic, at least by 2050. What would the necessary steps be to take place or to have to take place for humans to get to space with some, I guess, 
reasonable ability in the next foreseeable future? What does that actually look like for humans? Or is it still something that's only going to be left to the experts and astronauts and NASA for the next foreseeable future? Yeah, my money is it is on it being something that only astronauts that are you know, representing nations via space agencies like NASA and the Canadian Space Agency. And even that, I'm not 100% convinced that we're going to see you know, publicly funded astronauts like that on the surface of Mars within my lifetime. And this, this is something that, that NASA and other space agencies, including the Canadian Space Agency, have been working on for decades. It is incredibly challenging to send humans into space safely. Um, to get a, a human being into space at all is astonishingly difficult and expensive. Just launching off the planet is it just costs an enormous amount of money, and to do it safely is even more difficult. Um, so that's why we only currently have astronauts in space stations in orbit around Earth. Um, the Chinese Space Agency and uh, NASA, a NASA-led uh, coalition of agencies, are both working on getting humans back to the moon. But even that is very unlikely to happen within, I would say, by, even by the end of this decade, you know, that's what they're aiming for. I think developing the kind of systems required to keep human beings alive in space is just so complicated. Mm -hmm. And then if you're going even further afield, I mean, going to the moon is difficult, but that's really close to Earth. If you're going to Mars or to Venus, you're going a much greater distance where you have to keep astronauts alive on a multi-month-long journey, protected from solar radiation, fully equipped with all the things that they're going to need for that journey, but also to get to the destination and then to survive on that in that destination. And, and even the, the most ambitious plans led by NASA are not for people to live long-term on Mars. It's more to go establish, we can do this and then come back home and then maybe build up to some kind of um, system more like what we have with the International Space Station where people can go for months or maybe even more than a year at a time but this is far from being a, a colonization-type scenario. Do you think that private ventures like this, like OceanGate, for example, are getting in the way of the much-needed research and the, the seriousness that we need to be taking space travel with? I think the issue is that it affects the public's perception of space travel. We mm -hmm. saw the same thing when, um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and other billionaires launched their space tourism businesses um, in recent years. And there was just a very well-deserved public backlash about millionaires turning space into their playground, spending so much money to go do something that serves nobody but themselves. Um, I think you saw the same kind of thing as much as everybody felt the tragedy of the Titan submersible uh, disaster, people were also very aware that the people who were on that uh, submersible were people who had the disposable income to buy a $250,000 ticket. So again, just looking at people, people using extreme wealth to go play underwater or in space, it's not a good look in this day and age. <laughs> it's not really acceptable. And so from as a person, like my job is to advocate for space exploration, but specifically scientific space exploration, which is mostly done by robotic probes. Sometimes there's astronauts doing it. But, you know, we really, there's a lot of value to, to humanity, to going out and understanding space. 
but a lot of people lump in all other space-related activities together with that. So space tourism gets lumped in with space, like scientific space exploration. And when public, when the public is not supportive of space exploration, politicians who dictate how much money gets allocated to NASA and the Canadian Space Agency and other um, space agencies, those politicians don't have an incentive to increase budgets if the people who have elected them and who are, they need to continue to reelect them think that that's a waste of money um, or that it's pointless in some way. So there is this concern that, yeah, in that sense, it will interfere with the progress of scientific exploration. It's interesting to me that it's the same company that's coming forward that was responsible for the Titan submersible. And that's a different conversation for a different day, obviously, um, you know, shirked a lot of different responsibilities and protocols and ended up the way that it did. Are the company that's coming forward now with this idea, it feels like the idea of, you know, taking for granted the very force of nature and things that we don't quite understand in this case now, like space, that this company hasn't learned its lesson. So it makes it really Mm -hmm. hard to take it seriously and it makes it really hard to lend any sort of credibility to what they're saying and coming forward. What do you what do you make of these claims? Is this something that you think is just a stunt? I honestly, it's hard to it's hard to say. But having read some of the some, some quotes from this this founder and some of the things that he wrote on his own website, I get the impression that he is idealistic and visionary to the point of being delusional. Honestly, yes. I think I think that he and the other co-founder who died in the submersible um, implosion, they seemed to really believe that what they were doing was great. And I think the fact that, I think his name is Stockton Rush, the other co-founder who, who was on the, the Titan, I think the fact that he was there on it shows that he believed in it. I think if he had just sent a bunch of tourists down on their own, we might have, we might be more skeptical. But I do believe that these people genuinely think that, you know, the sky is the limit. And if you just are, are motivated and and enthusiastic and you have a vision that anything is possible, but that's just not how it works. Nature is harsh. And you see that when you go deep in the ocean and you see that when you go out into space, um, these are not environments to be trifled with. And I think, I think it's unlikely that we're actually going to see this company raise the money necessary to fund this project. I can't imagine they're going to get a thousand people who want to do this. Um, but even if they could, I don't think they would be able to get off the ground literally because it's just get, getting into space is so extremely technically challenging. I think ambitious to the point of delusion is uh, a really great way of putting it. I would absolutely agree with you in that sense. And I think that there are some limitations, unfortunately, uh, to being a human. And there are just some places that we mm-hmm. are not ready to go and to explore. And maybe we shouldn't. Kate, thank you. I agree. Thank you so much for your great insight. Uh, really appreciate all of your thoughts. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chelsea. It was great to talk about this stuff. It's interesting yeah. for sure. <laughs> but probably not realistic that we're going to colonize Venus <laughs> by 2050. Nope. Thanks, Kate. Take care. Talking now about working from home. So this obviously became a very familiar concept back in 2020 and for the next couple of years mainly out of necessity during COVID. But it's stuck around in a big way post-pandemic, even though a lot of employers have tried to call back workers to the office. So it raises some questions about how people are managing to work from home 
while take care of their kids? How are working parents managing this situation? We're going to get into it right now with our guest, who's a Nashville-based writer, editor, and mother of two, Tanya Abari. Tanya, thank you so much for making time for the show. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me, Chelsea. So, okay, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you make this work. I had to, uh, I <laughs> one time, uh, have my daughter at home with me while I was broadcasting a show remotely. Um, and it was nearly impossible. Just the challenges surrounding having a child in your environment while you're trying to work, the splitting of focus. I mean, parents are heroes at the best of times, let alone if you're working from home and you're trying to get some things done while having them there. How do you manage this? Walk us through sort of your work day and what this looks like for you. Ah, well, the word, the word impossible, I, there's an I'm possible in there. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I have to say that I have been working from home for 15 years, uh, wow, so okay. way before the pandemic. But the dynamic definitely changed when kids came into the picture. So um, chaos. It's one word that describes how the day looks. Um, But I also just have to say that my husband, we we both work from home and we've both been working from home for quite a while. Um, He's a former uh, football administrator uh, turned community manager. So he's been working from home for a while too. So it's kind of like us both juggling at home with the kids. Um, And so our day really revolves around um, the children. And so caregiving is our top priority from the time we wake up in the sun, uh, when the sun comes up until they're put to bed. However, we are um, very blessed that our jobs are also flexible um, in terms of when we get it done. So we kind of get it done uh, during nap times or when we switch off and like, Okay, he has to leave the house for a couple hours and then I get to work or go to the library. So it's kind of just like a juggling act of, you know, how we can work together to um, manage both of our schedules and get that work done within the the edges of the day, so to speak. <laughs> I think nothing makes you realize your capabilities more than becoming a parent and realizing exactly what it is that you can actually handle and that you can manage. So I imagine, Tanya, that there's a lot of fulfillment in doing something like this. Is that right? Yes, yes. Although it takes um, great sacrifice mm. for me, um, I am, a, I don't know if you're into the Zodiac, but I'm a double Cancerian. And so I am like, I love family. I love my, my family. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, sit here and like glorify it and make this, make it seem like all roses and, and, and doves because it is really hard. It's really hard. It's hard being a parent. Like, you know, this, but um, I do enjoy it. And I enjoy being there, you know, for their moments. Um, you know, when my kids, you know, first t- take their first steps, I'm able to watch. I'm right here. I can see, you know, a soccer game. My daughter has a soccer game or my daughter has a concert or she's she's had has a new milestone that she's reached in reading. I'm there for all of it. And so that to me like outweighs um some of the the struggle that um comes with working from home for kids. So it's just about, you know, and I always say that you have to do what's best for you and your family. And if it's like, you know, if you're if you're stressed out about it, like it's good to look at other options and you have choices and you have to make a choice. But for me, I look at the you know, what outweighs 
the struggle is that, you know, I am getting those moments of joy and I'm able to be there with my family because I, I feel really like I would like my life to have work revolve around my family um, and not the other way around. I love those priorities. And I think that, you know, you highlight the fact that with your job being flexible and your husband's job being flexible, it works in this situation. I don't know that in every in every in everyone's work life, this is something that they could apply and that they could right. do. I mean, I think this has to be really circumstantial. And if it works, amazing. And if you're able to balance this, wonderful. Not everybody really could. Even in a situation like yours where there is some flexibility I'm curious, Tanya, what are some of those those big challenges? Are there times where you need to call in some extra support and get some resources to to bail you out and watch the kids while you have a really important meeting or something where you you can't split your focus in the way that you normally can on your workday? What what does that look like? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, um, unfortunately for us, we're in a situation where we are we don't have family nearby um, mm-hmm. and it's just us. So we have kind of had to open ourselves up to really asking for help and asking our community for help that we have here um, and that we're currently building because we're, we're still building our community. Um, so it has been really challenging and that um, we feel like we don't get breaks <laughs> because, yeah. you know, both of us are like, okay, well, if we do have to ask someone, we're kind of tiptoeing and we're like, okay, well, I don't maybe trust you know, that this person will be reliable. And then who, you know, if we have to pay for care, we're kind of like, okay, can we justify spending this amount of money for uh, time when we need to, you know, for, for work and maybe not, we, we can't justify it. So um, it's, that has really been a challenge um, for us as a family. Um, but um, I don't know. I just, we, we just wake up to be honest every day and just do what we have to do. Um, <laughs> it may not be healthy. Like most but... parents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's interesting, Tanya, because you're in Nashville. I'm up here in Canada and I'm nodding along to everything that you're saying because I get that. It's so relatable, the idea of not having family nearby. We're in a really similar situation in our family as well. And so, yeah, it's it's that feeling of needing to ask for a favor and you're kind of wincing as you're doing it and you're justifying the cost for someone to come in. I know even just working in radio with sort of strange hours, it's hard to find childcare that accommodates. And I think that that's a big touchstone when we're talking about the idea of having some sort of other care for those working from home parents, because I think the flexibility of, of external care and the hours that need to be available to accommodate that are, are really hard to fill. Do you find that that's a situation too in Nashville? Yes, um, that's absolutely the situation. I, I'm a writer, so a lot of my friends and colleagues are also, like, in the creative space. And what happens is that, you know, we get our work done in, like, the early morning hours of the day or, like, late overnight. Um, and like you said, like, you work in radio, so you're working late hours. There's not really any options for childcare to to meet those kind of needs. And then also, you know, for parents looking for flexibility in also being able to um, check in with their kids while they're working. Um, I wish that there was like a co-working space where parents could come and they could be separated, but then also be there to yes. check in and see how they're doing at the same time. But I've found I've not found that yet. 
Um, of course, you know, they say, oh, if you, you want it, you can build it, but who has the time and who has the money? <laughs> <laughs> when? When are you, you going to do that? The idea yeah. is really nice. Yeah, Tanya, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, I saw that you had, you had kind of floated that idea around in the article that you were mentioned in talking about this. And I think that's such a brilliant idea. Someone needs to start that. But right now it yeah. feels that the Band-Aid solution in a lot of cases is the mom in a heterosexual relationship who's working Mm -hmm. from home who's sort of taking on that extra role i want to talk a little bit about gender disparity and maybe it's in your case or maybe it's just in in other cases that you know about when it comes to the situation hey welcome back to the show this is chelsea bird filling in for ben o'hara burn tonight on a little more conversation glad to have you here listening and chiming in on some of our conversations, of course, you can send a text to 877-399-9898. We're talking about working from home and specifically working from home as a parent. How do you manage that? Uh, this texter wrote in, make sure you include your name so I can shout you out, said, I finished my PhD with my first son born at home. Um, I could only really work two hours or so a day after my kid went to bed. It was impossible to do it while she was awake. I heard a mom say it perfectly a few weeks ago. Trying to work from home while actively parenting is like trying to read a book at a Metallica concert. Well, our guest said that there is an I'm possible somewhere in impossible. So maybe it's a mindset shift for some of us. But uh, let's talk about what it's really like to work from home as a parent. Our guest is Nashville-based writer, editor, and mother of two, Tanya Abari. Tanya, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm ready to jump back in. <laughs> I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about the fairness when it comes to working from home and maybe it's in your specific situation or maybe you don't want to go into the details of that. Um, maybe it's just what you know of from other parents that are doing a similar thing, but there's a lot of talk about the gender disparity that takes place for working moms specifically that they take on a much bigger role because they're at home. And so they'll end up working their job and then also, you know, taking on a lot of the housework and childcare responsibilities just on themselves. So it comes across like it's a lot to shoulder. Can you speak to that? Um, yes, absolutely. I, even though, you know, in, in my home, we try not to uh, allocate gender roles, but it, it it is what it is as a mom, you know, I'm a lactating mom, I'm nursing, the, the babies are, you know, the baby's coming to me. Um, I have to put down work to feed baby. Um, when my husband has his laptop out, they don't bother him. They come to me. Um, and so, and they have radar. Okay, what's mommy doing? Mommy's mommy's trying to work. So, you know, I need something right at this moment. And even though dad's sitting right here, I'm going to go ask mommy. So um, there are a lot of things that um, just follow me as a mother. And I think that, you know, it's definitely a real thing um, uh, across the board. And I've heard, um, I have some friends whose husbands don't pull their weight or their partners don't pull their weight. And I think we have to advocate for ourselves and first open up the lines of communication. If you are a parent working from home and say, Hey, you know, this is leaning in one direction and I need it to be a little bit more balanced. And I need to take some of these things off of my plate because it's not fair and I'm burning out because this is happening. So I think um, I've been able to do that. And I think help having worked from home before having kids um, helped a lot too, because I was the only one working from home at first. And then I would, you know, just have to say with my voice, look, listen, I'm not here to do X, Y, and Z. I'm actually here working. Um, Mm -hmm. And so making that very clear 
um, and forming those those boundaries and just speaking up for yourself, I think is really important. Um, if you're especially as your mom, if you're a mom working from home, because yes, unfortunately, because of societal norms and things that are um, just people are programmed to to put a lot of work onto the mom. I think that we have to break those barriers by just using our voice and speaking up for ourselves in that situation. Um, and it's easier said than done because sometimes it's just the load we carry and mm-hmm. we're used to it. And we've seen it before in our families. We've seen our moms, we've seen our aunts and our sisters carry those heavy loads. So, um, but I'm, I'm grateful that uh, I do have a supportive partner that um, carries a lot of the load as well. And is not afraid to jump in and do whatever need, that needs to be done to help balance. But at the end of the day, Yes, the, the 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 burden of the majority, I do feel like I'm the default uh, parent a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there's a dynamic that exists that has just become very normalized in our society for, for many different reasons, that the default parent often becomes the mom and that mental load just becomes something that she adopts. And it's, I think roles have shifted over the years and over the decades for the better, but there is sort of, a, I think, a natural rhythm that falls into the mom taking on um a really a large role that remains, I think, uh, maybe unnoticed or unseen and becomes just a normal way of life. And I think communicating is a really good way to address that. And constant communication is a really good way to address that. Maybe because your situation, Tanya, is different and you've been working from home for 15 years, you know, before the pandemic and now after, um, this might not necessarily apply to your specific work. But, you know, there are reports that indicate that room for advancement looks really different for people working from home because they're they're not seen. They're not seen in the office. And so they're not necessarily considered for promotion. Do you feel that that's uh, that's another challenge of this um, arrangement? Um, I do. Speaking from someone, but I, I again, I have been working from home for a long time. And so I have made I've kind of made it a priority for me to work with employers who um, value uh, work from home or remote work working and are not afraid to um, switch their philosophies around to accommodate that. Mm. Um, so I have a little different, you know, situation, but I can, from friends and from people that I've talked to, that has been a concern uh, that they are afraid that if they're working from home and if they don't go in, that they won't be considered for, those promotions and then they won't be considered for upward and they won't have upward mobility in their jobs. Um, for me, I don't know, uh, being a, a black woman also is, has been working from home for me has protected me from a lot of, um, in office things that I, that stress me out otherwise, i.e. racism, sexism, um, mm. and microaggressions, things like that. Um, so I can't really clearly say that uh, working from home has benefited or benefited me or not. I've always been a freelancer, and that has been by choice. Um, I have no interest in um, being a full-time employee. Now, that comes with a different set of challenges because health insurance and all those things here in the United States, your health insurance is tied to your job. Mm-hmm. So um, that's really been a challenge for me. Um, as a freelancer, because I I love working for different projects and not being tied to an employer. But then also, you know, I'm depending on my other half 
for his stable position to provide health insurance for the family. So, um, yeah, I can't really speak to that directly, but I do know that it's been affecting some of my colleagues, yes. Well, Tanya, I'm so glad to hear that in some situations this can really work, and it sounds like in yours it really is. That's all the time that we have together with you tonight, but thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. We're going to get into home ownership because in Canada it remains a huge issue with so many people feeling just absolutely priced out of the even idea of home ownership. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Hamilton yesterday and admitted that Canada does have an affordable housing problem. Right now we're facing a real challenge around housing in terms of supply. Uh, There's simply not enough places for people to live right across uh, the lower and middle income uh, spectrum. So how did we get here and how do we navigate our way out? Our next guest uh, has written a really great piece for mclean's.ca. It's called The End of Home Ownership, if you want to read that online. Uh, she's a contributing editor for Maclean's Magazine and Indigenous-led conservation editor for the Narwhal, Michelle Sisa. Michelle, thank you so much for making the time. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. You wrote a really great piece for McLean's talking about just the landscape of home ownership in this country and your own personal experience as well. I'm wondering, how do you think, in your opinion, that we got here in regards to the difficulty of even attempting to own a home in a Canadian city? Well, with the caveat that I'm not an economist, so I hope nobody yells at me after this. It, <laughs> it seems like, in short, the biggest issue is that home prices have climbed like crazy, especially in the last eight years where they've doubled since 2015 across the country. Um, But wages have not been increasing, you know, in tandem. So as home prices have risen so much faster than people's earnings, it means that it's harder and harder for people who don't already own a home to get into the market. But meanwhile, people who do own homes, especially people who've owned them for a long time, and especially in these markets that have seen the greatest increases in prices, those people are getting wealthier and wealthier. So what we're seeing in Canada is not just that homeownership is exactly unaffordable, but that, you know, owners, and especially longtime owners, are getting very wealthy. And meanwhile, renters are uh, are just not experiencing that same security or that same um, benefit. So one of the most striking statistics that I found when I was researching this article was that on average in Canada, homeowners have 29 times as much wealth as renters. And that gap is just getting wider every year. Wow. Wow. Pretty crazy. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think we know that there is this gap, uh, but I think when you put it like that, it really, it brings it to light. I'm curious, Michelle, why did you want to dive into this? This subject, you talk a lot about growing up in Vancouver and seeing, you know, the real estate market, which I think kind of has its own set of rules, or at least for a certain amount of time, it seemed to in Vancouver. So was it just seeing things changing around you that really wanted to make you wanted to make you do a deep dive into this topic? I mean, I think every single person in Vancouver to a certain extent is obsessed with the housing market. It's kind of what we talk about all the time. (laughs) Um, and as someone who grew up here, like I have an unusual situation among my peers. I'm a millennial, but my parents bought a house in the 70s. They also grew up in Vancouver. And so um, I had this kind of generational foothold in the city. And I know so many people. I have so many friends and colleagues who've moved to Vancouver and tried to build a life here. And they just haven't been able to stay. They've had to leave because it's so expensive or, you know, they have an affordable rental, but then they're 
made to move, they're rent evicted or their building gets torn down or whatever. And, you know, they they just can't stay. And it seems like an exceptionally hard city for people to build a life in unless they're lucky enough to kind of inherit this intergenerational housing wealth the way I have. And when we talk about the housing crisis, we often talk about it as if it's a crisis that affects everybody the same way. But that's really not true. It it affects people who don't have access. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have gotten incredibly wealthy just because they had the good fortune and the good sense to buy a house 40 years ago or, or even 30 years ago in Vancouver. And, you know, that's something I think we do need to unpack a little bit more. And I wanted to talk about my perspective on it and, and encourage people who've been fortunate and, you know, are just the, the beneficiaries of this kind of dumb luck to reflect on what their obligations are to their communities as well. You, you talk about that a lot in the article, Michelle, too. You discuss the history of home ownership then versus today. Is that a big component of it? Is it that inheritance of that generational home ownership and now that's not something that's really attainable today or is there more to it? I mean, I think that's a big piece worth discussing. You know, Canada's always treated um, home ownership and primary residences as, as a different kind of investment, right? They're they're exempt from um, like certain kinds of taxes when you pass them on to your children. It's a really secure way for people to build wealth through generations. Um, and we've seen in cities like Vancouver and Toronto that it's this incredibly powerful way of consolidating wealth through families. So I think that that is a piece worth talking about, but there's other factors as well. I mean, another big one that I mentioned in the article is that in the middle of the 20th century, from the 1940s through kind of the early 80s, the federal government in particular invested a lot in building purpose-built rental. So, you know, there was a ton of um, money being spent to encourage people to buy homes and build homes, but there was also a healthier supply of rental stock and that really dried up in the 80s which put more pressure on homeownership um you know it drove more people to buy if they could afford to buy it made renting more expensive and more scarce and so that's a big thing you know that's when trudeau is talking about increasing supply it's not just building homes for people to buy we really have this huge deficit in this country of rental housing and that needs to be addressed as well I think home ownership for so many Canadians has been really tied for a long time to our sense of self-worth, our sense of accomplishment. And it's a safeguard for our financial future, as you just mentioned. I think it has been for so many people for so long, one of the main pillars of success. And now it feels that for so many generations, that's slipping away. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's so destabilizing because the time in your life where you're thinking about buying a home, you know, in your 20s and 30s is also when you're building your life in all these other really important ways. When people are getting married, they're thinking about having kids, they're trying to build a career. And if they don't have any stability in the community where they're trying to have a life, you know, like if they can't guarantee that they can put down roots in, in the city where they want to live, what does that mean for their career prospects? You know, I have friends who have put off having kids or who have decided to have fewer children than they want because they just can't afford to do it or because they have a two-bedroom rental that they're barely hanging on to. And, you know, like any any disruption would just cause that house of cards to collapse. So I think it's a real feeling of sort of hopelessness and helplessness among people who, you know, can't just achieve this milestone, but without it feel like they have no security in the place that they live. Do you feel like the people that you spoke to when researching this article are are oftentimes compromising? So they're compromising those things that you just mentioned, like being able to build their career or consider having a family. Is there a lot of sacrifice that you're seeing taking place? 
Oh, yeah, there's so much of it. And it's really, it's quite bleak, you know, when you consider how expensive renting is as well. Um, A lot of people sort of have barely hung on to a a current rental. Like if they moved into a place five years ago, rents have gone up so much since then that they can't really afford to leave the place they're in. So they're stuck in many ways. They might be stuck in a place that's too small or that's really far from work or, you know, isn't big enough for them to have a family or even where they can't get a dog. Like there's lots of things that people would like to be doing, but their housing doesn't allow for it. And because of these crazy skyrocketing costs, they just have no mobility. And that plays out, you know, in in national ways, too. Like somebody living in Edmonton is really limited in their ability to take a job in Toronto because that's Mm. such a huge increase in housing prices. So it's constraining the growth of our communities and the health of our communities in all these um, insidious ways, besides just the sort of devastating effect I think it's having on people who really can't have the life that they want. So, you know, we've been talking about the home ownership crisis and what it looks like, what sort of led us here. Um, I'm wondering if you can sort of paint a picture of your own personal experience living in Vancouver, what you've noticed about your own personal neighborhood over the years. I think so many Canadians think of Vancouver as uh, just a world in and of itself when it comes to real estate and house prices. It definitely is. I mean, in some ways, it's a really interesting case study for what is happening in other cities across Canada, you know, especially Toronto. But I think since the pandemic, we've seen um, sort of similar effects in many cities across Canada where prices have gone up really suddenly and, and people are really reckoning with this like sudden crisis of affordability. Um, but I grew up in a neighborhood on Vancouver's west side called Carrotsdale. And it's been really interesting to live here again as an adult and see how different the neighborhood is. Um, and the biggest way it's changed, in my view, is it's a lot older and a lot quieter. So when I was a kid, there were lots of other kids around there were lots of families um but because it's become so expensive like everywhere on the west side of vancouver in particular young families can't afford to buy homes here um so it's you know a lot of people who bought their homes decades ago the schools are a lot emptier on the west side compared to the east side of vancouver where there are more families um it's just like a lot quieter and you know it's it's interesting to see these effects where in a lot of the West side neighborhoods like mine, um, individual owners have benefited a lot from their properties becoming so valuable, but kind of at the expense of their communities. So, you know, businesses are, are going broke because they don't have any customers because the neighborhood has lost so many residents and the schools are empty. They can't afford to, you know, people who, who can't afford to like work at the local coffee shop. So, it's hard for them to find staff. There's all these effects that you see at the community level of unaffordability, and I see them where I live for sure, um, where it's it's quite quiet and empty, and there's a lot of empty $4 million homes for sale. Wow. Wow. Um, what a picture <laughs> to paint and to try to imagine. The cost of community, I think, is such an interesting point. I think it really drives home exactly what's been going on and how just how dangerous this situation has become for Canada and for our cities, for the communities we're trying to build. What what do we do? How do we fix this, Michelle? Can we fix this? I mean, how to fix it is a really big question, but <laughs> there are there are real solutions. I mean, I think one one myth that it's important that we uh, let go of is the idea that it's unfixable because there's a lot of really practical and straightforward things that can be done at all levels of government. Um, and some of some of them we're starting to see put into practice now, you know, so um, 
putting some restrictions around short-term rentals like Airbnb, which has been another really disruptive factor in housing markets. Um, ideally, I think, you know, disincentivizing speculation, people who buy up condos um, or lots of properties and try and squeeze as much profit out of them, which puts a greater burden on renters. Um, and also, you know, on people who are trying to buy their first home who are competing with investors who have much deeper pockets and are much more likely to prevail if they're bidding on the same condo. Um, but it also requires us, you know, as, as neighbors and residents of the same communities to change our attitudes if we are homeowners. So in Vancouver, another thing you see is every time there's a proposed rental building or a proposed change to a neighborhood, longtime homeowners are often very strongly opposed because they don't want to see anything change. They don't want more density. They don't want more cars fighting for parking. They, you know, they like things the way it is, and they really do fight tooth and nail to prevent um, change in their neighborhoods. And and sometimes they, you know, you do see comments. Um, in Vancouver, when there's a new rental building proposed or something where people say, like, well, this is going to decrease the value of my home. And I really think that, you know, there has to be a shift in how we think about the values of our homes as more than just these monetary investments um, or things that, you know, we should be expecting to see these rapid increases in value year over year because the last 10 or 15 years are, are an anomaly historically. And it's not really sustainable for prices to keep going up as they have been. So, you know, we don't want to see a, a crash in housing prices. That would be pretty devastating for people. But mm. it, they need to slow a lot so that wages can catch up, so that people who are trying to get in have an opportunity. Um, and that really will require people to, to change their expectations um, if they've been lucky enough to benefit from the way the housing market has played out so far. Yeah, I wonder about, you know, on the note of expectations, if the, if our mindset needs to shift a little bit in terms of the idea of what homeownership needs to look like. And maybe it is different in in cities that do have a lot of density, like Vancouver or like a Toronto. You know, the idea of this big, sprawling home maybe needs to be kind of reconsidered. And the idea of maybe a multi-generational home or a smaller home or a townhouse maybe needs to be the new normal. Do you think our understanding or our idea of what homeownership and ultimately success needs to be might need to shift? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think just thinking of, you know, I think for a long time, there's been this idea that you know, apartments are for single people and elderly people. That's sure. that's kind of how they were built in the in the middle of the 20th century. They were sort of these homes for people who who weren't raising children, for instance. Whereas tons of people are raising children in apartments. Tons of people like raising children in apartments and don't want a giant house to take care of. Um, it's so I think you know accepting that we need to be building different types of housing for all the different ways that people live households are smaller than they used to be like a lot of people uh, live in households of one or two and they should have great places to live as well we can't just be building for this kind of nuclear family model that Mm -hmm. the the idea of home ownership was devised around Um, and so that's a a really big piece of it I think is is changing that expectation but also we we should be building um, rental and ensuring people who do rent, you know, who never get into home ownership, also have secure places to live throughout their life. So one of the one of the sort of saddest stories I heard when I was reporting the story was from someone who had been renting the same home for 33 years, and the owners of the home were selling it, so he was going to have to move. And in that time, because prices had increased so much, he he's really like facing down homelessness because there's no security if you're a renter. 
um, in Canada, there's no security like there is for being an owner. And I think we really have to change that as well. And the idea of homeownership is so unattainable in so many ways. You put it really nicely in your article, Michelle. You said in 1986, a young adult working full-time could expect to save for a down payment in five years. Now they'd have to save for 17 years or nearly 30 in Vancouver and or Toronto. Uh, I think you bring this to life in such a great way in your article and uh, certainly in our conversation today. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chelsea. Of course. Take care. That's Michelle Seesaw, contributing editor for McLean's Magazine. Uh, the article, The End of Home Ownership, is in mcleans.ca for uh, the July issue. Uh, I'm glad to get into some really important and big conversations on the show this evening. Our next one uh, is no exception. Uh, we're talking about the situation in Afghanistan, which continues to be absolutely dire, I think, and that's putting it gently, especially for women under Taliban rule. One of the latest developments is that Afghanistan has officially banned girls from secondary and higher education, and the Taliban has ordered the closure of all teacher training centers across the country. So now approximately 5,600 teachers and staff have lost jobs, and the consequences of this will have devastating impacts on girls and women in that country. So let's get some some greater detail on what is exactly going on and what anyone can do to try to help. Our guest is the executive director for Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, also known as CW4WA, Lauren Oates. Lauren, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm hoping that you can clarify exactly what's happened here. And I understand we can't be too specific for the protection of those affected, but can you explain what has closed and just remind us what is encompassed in this most recent ban. Yeah, so what's happened is in July, the Taliban quietly closed down all of the country's teacher colleges. So during the first Taliban regime, there was one single teacher's college, which was located in the capital, Kabul, and it had only male students. And over the last 20 years, the Ministry of Education managed to get a teacher's college open in every single province of the country. And Afghanistan has 34 provinces, and some had more than one. So there was about 44 teacher colleges. Um, Some were really large, some were smaller, um, but they employed several thousand teacher trainers and other staff. And that was basically the engine for producing new teachers. And by the time of the regime change in August 2021, most of the teacher trainers working there were women. Um, and it was one of the ways that they were trying to catch up with, uh, with girls' education because you need gr- women teachers to teach girls. So the more women teachers who were graduating from these colleges, the more girls' schools that could open. So that has just been, you know, 20 years of work has virtually come undone overnight. How, how, does, that, how does that come to pass? What, are the, what does the closure of these centers look like? Is it violent? Is it forceful? How does that take place? Yeah, I mean, the Taliban have such a monopoly on violence that they don't need to be that forceful. They make pronouncements and people fall into line because the consequences are, are so dire. There's been a lot of um, executions. There's been forced disappearances, which sometimes result in executions. Um, imprisonment, torture, and so people generally cooperate because they're they're very very afraid not to. So the, the main impact is that um, all of the people who worked in these colleges have been sent home, and they're now jobless. 
So this affects around 4,000 academic staff and then, you know, all, all the other staff that you typically find in a higher education institution. So, you know, in a really, really dire economic situation affecting the country right now, um, you have, you know, several thousand more just added to the pool of unemployed people trying to figure out how they're going to they're going to feed their families. And the question as to why the Taliban has done this, this is really part and parcel of a larger move to, uh, to, to take control of the public education system because the Taliban recognize how important it is to, to controlling the ideology of the public and to advancing their own ideology. And so this is really you know, part, part of a trend. There's been other things that happened before, and I think there's more to come after this, but this was a this was a fairly pivotal move that you know signaled very clearly their intentions uh, with regards to the the school system, and that they do not consider the training of professional teachers to be important, and they especially wish to undermine uh, girls' education by cutting off the supply of women teachers. Lauren, is what are the long term impacts for this specific ban? for this country and for women, for the future of women in Afghanistan? Yeah, the, the impacts are multiple. And there's, of course, the immediate impact of the sure. people who have lost their jobs and are trying to figure out what to do next. And then, you know, you have the, the larger impacts for the education system. And, you know, I, I think lots of people figure that the Taliban will not be in power forever, that this is not a really stable regime. But the damage that that's done already by undoing the teacher education system is really, really serious. But one of the consequences that might be more positive, in fact, is that the more they clamp down on the education system, the more they exclude people like women and girls, the more people look outside of that system for their access Mm. to education. And what we're seeing happen is actually the emergence of a kind of alternative education system, education systems in exile, you know, people doing online education. And that's one of the things that we pivoted to doing very, very early on after the fall of Kabul in 2021, because we knew we had to keep the doors open to classrooms for girls. And we already were engaged in technology for education work. And so we knew this was possible to do in the context of Afghanistan. Um, and since then, many others have, have joined. And, you know, many, I don't know the exact numbers because this stuff isn't publicly recorded, but I would figure that, you know, many tens of thousands of girls and young women and women are studying online from inside Afghanistan. Um, and and that's going to, you know, help preserve the education sector to some extent and also help preserve some of the gains. And Canada was one of the investors in, in the teacher training college system specifically. Um, they helped reform the curriculum of the system and, and get those teacher colleges open and paid for the training of, of female teachers. And so, you know, these are sort of little um, nuggets of hope that we can we can grasp onto in that some of those gains will be preserved through these efforts of kind of circumventing um, the what the Taliban are doing. Yeah, I mean, it certainly shows a lot of resilience and ambition for a, sort of a, a guerrilla approach like that to take place and for women to try to find some other option to to have a source of education um, and future opportunity, which hopefully uh, can be something that they can they can seek out and they can strive towards. Um, but this isn't the only type of ban that's taken place. There are other limits when it comes to employment, specifically for women in Afghanistan. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, so th- this has been an incremental process, and it's, I think it's sometimes hard for people to keep track of all of the bans and boycotts and edicts that have come into place. Um, there's been about um, there's been over a hundred that affect women specifically. So wow. first, certain sectors started closing down for women, um, and they were told to you know stop coming to work in uh, government agencies and at government ministries and to just stay home. Um, and then in December of last year, they were told that they can't work for NGOs, for non-governmental organizations anymore. And that was one of the last remaining sectors where women could still be employed. So, um, you know, this was, was hit really, really hard um, economically, especially for many women who are the breadwinners of their families. And because of the you know, larger political situation, uh, Afghanistan's economy is in a free fall. You know, the banking sector is on the verge of collapse. Uh, famine is is right at the door. There's been a skyrocketing uh, increase in, in in child malnutrition, and and so you know you into the situation you then add poor poor fuel on the fire and uh, and take more jobs away from people. So this just had a devastating economic impact, um, and it also has a human rights impact because you're 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 violating the right to employment for women. And then that very same month, uh, this was just a couple of weeks apart. Uh, the Taliban announced that all higher education institutions were closed to women and girls. And already high school had been closed off to, to girls. And so this, this was basically meant that only primary education is accessible to girls. Um, so grades one to six, there's no kindergarten in Afghanistan. And then after that, they, they stopped schooling. And I can't tell you how often, you know, we hear from girls and sometimes from their parents about the impact this has on on them and the the main word that comes to mind is hopelessness that you know even in in dire situations people were deriving hope from education and from thinking about a future that could be different and without education that feels impossible um and and that worried us immensely and we thought we have to find a way to for there not to be hopelessness and for there to be alternative ways of accessing education of course Everyone wants the you know, full access to education to be restored um, and for girls to be able to go to school as they did before. But in the interim, we absolutely have to do something and, and we can't just wait around and let years go by. Because Every single year that a girl is out of school has reverberating consequences, not only for her, but, you know, for future generations, too. Of course. And one of the really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, you know, and- I, I, Sorry, go ahead. No, I know. I know there's there's so much to get into, Lauren, and I have so many questions as you're speaking too. But, you know, I just think about the motivation from the Taliban to, to even be enforcing some of these bans on some of these new regimes. Because, you know, to have a functioning society and a functioning economy, you need people contributing to it, men and women. And so I wonder what's the ultimate perception from the Taliban in terms of what women are to men? Is it just this idea of they're just subservient and therefore they are not, they, they shouldn't have any rights? What's the ultimate understanding of their role in this society that that's trying to be created here? Yeah, this is a really important question because it's really at the heart of who the Taliban are. And I, I think sometimes this is missed uh, in, in the West where we're observing from afar. And we think that the, that the way they see women and girls is peripheral to their overall movement, that they're, they're focused on other things. But right. it's actually really central to their ideology, the subjugation of, of women and girls. And it should also be somewhat predictable to us because 
we've seen this movie before, you know, we, and, and we're seeing really a repeat of everything that happened back in the 1990s when they ruled Afghanistan, um, you know, one step after another. The most recent thing was that they've, they've banned music which is also something that they did in the 1990s, like shutting down teachers' colleges and banning women from work and, and from school. So I, I think they're just gradually trying to go back to exactly how things were back then. And this is coming from Kandahar, from the head of the Taliban in, in Kandahar. Um, and it's really central to their vision of, of Afghan society. And it's very, very dangerous. And actually, it's ultimately dangerous for the whole world, not just for Afghans. What can anyone do? Is there any hope? Absolutely. And, you know, the source of hope is Afghans. This is a different society than the the society that was there in 2001 at the end of Taliban rule back then. This is a society that had access to education and employment and to, you know, the the rest of the world. Afghanistan came out of uh, isolation after 2001 and was really interconnected with, with the rest of the world. And they're just not willing to go back to the way things were. They've seen another way and people are very resilient and they're fighting, but they're, they're yelling very loud to be heard and, and often feeling like they're being neglected by the international community, that the international community is at a loss about what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really practical policy responses that, that can take place. And probably the most important one of all is investing in those alternative forms of education. You know, making online education, quality online education accessible. It needs to be accredited. People want, you know, a recognized education. They don't just want to pass their time watching something online for, for, for fun. They want, uh, they want letters after their name, like, like most people do from an education. And things like infrastructure, um, getting satellites turned on over Afghanistan so people can access the Internet that way. And helping people pay for the cost of Internet and computers. Um, giving scholarships to study outside of the country or in the region. And, you know, just really, really pragmatic measures like that that make quality education accessible and restore that right to learn are totally within reach. And they're absolutely things that we can do now uh, and that we, we need to call for ours and other governments to make happen for the people of Afghanistan. And we can make that change when we're informed about what's really going on. So, Lauren, I really appreciate you um, sharing some perspective about what is really taking place. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. To ban cosmetic testing was critical because it is not required. It is unnecessary. It is cruel and painful. It causes suffering and death in animals and all for beauty products. So it was a really easy place for the government to uh, bring an end to that kind of egregious animal testing. Welcome back to the show. This is a little more conversation. My name is Chelsea Bird, your guest host for tonight. And yeah, that audio clarifying that the government of Canada banned the cruel and unnecessary testing of cosmetic products on animals here in Canada back in June. But in a lot of instances, animals are still used for research, testing, and experimenting. So are there some situations where this is necessary or do we need to just completely move on from this method of really um, abuse, real abuse and these horrible situations in so many cases? Uh, Let's get some perspective from someone who has worked closely in this industry as a former associate professor and the graduate program director of behavioral neuroscience at Oregon Health and Science University, Garrett Lavis. Garrett, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, it's great to be on your show. Thank you so much. You wrote an incredibly detailed article for Vox about your experience working with lab-kept monkeys for testing. And some of it, Garrett, was honestly, it was hard to read. The tests that are done are so troubling. I'm curious if you can explain why you decided to leave that kind of work and ultimately academia in that sense. Oh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I was doing... Well, I was we were we were doing a lot of experiments. I worked mostly in mice, so I worked a lot with people who worked with primates. Mm. But I just I was we were trying to understand genetic causes of autism in mice, and I just we we some of our experiments in some of our experiments we found that they enjoyed they were very careful experiments that they enjoyed being with one another and that they had empathy for one another. And they were they were tough experiments, so it's not easy to explain. Um, but then I started noticing that these animals were stuck in cages with one another for life. And I was wondering if I would be all that social if I were stuck in a cage with three other people for life. And then I started looking through the literature, and I wasn't the first scientist to have this epiphany. Through the last 70 years or so, scientists have been realizing, but they're always kind of sidelined, that when you put animals in cages, they don't represent animals in the wild, mm-hmm. let alone humans that can move freely about. And I thought, this is a waste of my time to be a scientist. If I only have one life to live, I don't want to do something that's just generating bad data. So I left. Which, I I mean, I think is commendable because I can only imagine the ethical dilemma that you would go through day after day in a situation like that, especially after making that realization. I think once you've gotten to that point, there's no turning back. And this right. is this is a big question to answer, um, but when we're talking about some of the cons of receiving useful data and information from testing on caged lab animals, you just mentioned one, the fact that you're not actually replicating their natural environment. What are some other cons when it comes to taking part in these well, experiments? It's funny. I don't know if I could answer the question a little bit like this, because I think there's I think the pros and the cons are so tightly linked that they, and the scientists kind of sh- shoot at the pros but they're the exact same as the cons. Hmm. So, like, if that's okay. The, the pro is that, you know, if you study just, like, how biological phenomenon occur in little tiny cells, like floating in a soup of other little tiny cells, you don't get an idea of the context. So, like, if a cell is in, a little tiny cell is in the brain, and the brain has eyes and ears and all that, it will know where to go and where to extend its axons, and it'll get all this information from all the other parts of the brain. So scientists will say, and I believe that's true, that context matters, that you can learn a lot of stuff from looking at a whole animal that you could never learn from looking at cells in a soup. But we always make or always hide the other side of that, is that It's a whole animal, and a whole animal is heavily affected by its environment. We know this through what's called epigenetics. We know a whole lot. We know that even from just regular human experience, if you're out in the sun, your skin gets darker, or if you work out, your muscles get bigger. Well, but if you put an animal in a tiny, tiny little cage, they're going to be pretty weird. They're going to be pretty abnormal, as some of the, especially monkeys, but all kinds of animals. And also... We know from 70 years of science that these animals have very solid sentient experiences. They think and they feel. And to not be able to move, essentially almost not move at all, inside a cage means that 
all all the ways in which they feel affect their mental health, their psych, their um, immune systems, their cardiovascular systems. So a lot of the data we get is just complete garbage because we're looking at we're 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 dismissing all those other things that are also important to a whole animal that wouldn't be a problem with a little cell, you know, in a some of- soup. Some of it, I think, is just so hard to sit with. And some of the some of the tests that you outline in your article, scaring monkeys, for example, um, there was a a story there, a situation that you mentioned several times throughout the article about sewing monkeys' eyelids shut to replicate right. blindness. But the idea right. of using these mentally damaged animals to try to study mental health, I mean, does that does that work? Does that ever work? It doesn't work. And you see what they're doing there. Like sewing the eyes shut, and so say, okay, we're only shutting a few, sewing the eyes shut of a few animals. But we have lots of animals that are normal and healthy, but they're not normal and healthy. So when they do their controls, their healthy controls, and they make, we we come up with ideas for what we just discovered. We're assuming that these these animals that have, you know, they're doing self injurious behaviors. They've got stereotypies, meaning like they rock in place for hours and hours. Um, I, I'll tell you about floating limb. I think that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, but, the, you know, you can't, they're not healthy animals, so they're not healthy controls. And for the diseased ones, it's like you shut the eyes closed or so they're closed, eyes closed. It's not like whatever you learn from that is going to be all that relevant if they've also got these other functional deficits because they've been in these tiny little cages. Right. So it just creates a whole lot of, what I think of as artifacts of living in this tight, tight confinement situation. Kira, there must be other scientists that are seeing it the same way, though, too. And yet some of these experiments are still being carried out. There's got to be a better way. As I mentioned off the top, and you heard the audio piece run about Canada now banning cosmetic testing on animals. You know, Mm -hmm. there are other opportunities like lab-created flesh to test on. You know, we seem to be at a point now where there's been a lot of scientific breakthrough for other options. So are we not completely there yet? Well, it's mixed. Part of the issue is it's all dependent upon the questions you ask. So, you know, if you need a whole animal to study something, maybe that would you need that whole animal. But I don't know if we really need to study the things that require whole animals anymore. I mean, one area, for example, that I'm concerned about is how we're exposed to lots and lots of different pollutants at the same time that can cause cancer and mental health challenges and and uh, have a whole variety of effects. And you can't study them one at a time with one animal in a cage or 10 animals in a cage. You need high throughput, fast, efficient systems, which are going to be like little cells in test tubes and things like that. If we just, and, and that gets to this critical point, if we, maybe you need those animals to study questions that aren't all that relevant maybe what we should be doing is asking much more relevant questions with different systems that don't use animals. Do you have optimism and hope that we'll, we'll get there? I do, but it's always in the young people, you know, I mean, I see my graduate (laughs) students and I look at them and they're like, yeah, there's so much bogus stuff about these studying animals in small cages and I want to do something different. Some of them leave science, but some of them are moving on to other systems that, that are smaller and, you know, faster and not using animals or going in epidemiology, et cetera, uh, where they can study human beings. And, you know, that's where the fire is. And that's actually what I love about science is that, you know, I think we're 
it's it's very amenable to change. It's just I think this time the change has got to come from young people, and it's got to come from people outside of science who have some common sense here. Um, I think part of it is that older scientists, you know, we get stuck in our ways. Mm-hmm. It's really good to have that career. You make a lot of money. You get to go to, you know, conferences all over the place. They wine and dine you. It's a good deal. And uh, and, and you're putting your kids through college or whatever on, the, on top of that. So you, you just get stuck in that place and kind of, and that's, that makes the science just stay in place too. Sure. I mean, these are medieval yeah. technologies, right? I mean, they were putting bears in cages in the 1500s and poking them, and we're not doing anything different with these monkeys today. Wow. Garrett, what a way to put it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it, and what a great article that really brings to life well, so you. much of what goes into this. I really thank you for your time tonight. Oh, thank you so much. It's been uh, great to talk with you.